you know, I'm a much better person when I'm riding my bike. If I don't ride my bike too much, not so good. You never know how strong you are until being strong is your only option. It's really with one end goal in mind of a better cycling experience. There's a huge overlap. We're covering all these aspects of cycling. It's not just about the high-level cyclists. It's not just about the health club. Now it's about a bike, a power meter, technology, data. It's about cycling, no matter where you do it and how you do it. That's all I got. <laughs> Welcome to Bridge the Gap, presented by Stages Cycling. I'm Bryce Hanson, and on this show, we talk about all things cycling, no matter how or where you do it. Today, I'm joined by former professional cyclist and legendary coach, Chris Carmichael. If you don't know Chris Carmichael, check this out. He was a part of the 84 Olympic team and raced on the first American team to go to the Tour de France in 86. He's also raced classics like Milan-San Remo and Roubaix multiple times, but his career didn't stop there. He became a legendary coach and the CEO and founder of Carmichael Training Systems. He was named Coach of the Year by several institutions, including the Olympic Committee. He was even inducted into the Bicycle Hall of Fame in 2003. If you're interested in what Chris Carmichael and his coaches at CTS have to offer, you can go to trainright.com to learn more. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining the show. I'm uh, excited to chat with you for a bit. Thanks for having me on. We have been planning this chat for a few weeks now, but uh, of course, I decided to have a nice little little hop off on my mountain bike a couple weeks ago and broke the collarbone. So we've had to postpone, but I'm glad to be back and encouraged to hear that you've also, like many cyclists, had a couple breaks of of the clavicle as well. I have. They say in, in Belgium, you're really not a bike racer till you break your collarbone. And uh, so welcome to the team. Yeah, that's right. I finally get to join the club. I'm legit now. Unfortunately, I, I broke both my elbows two years ago as well at the same time. Ooh, so I'm just happy to have my left hand. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, getting these headphones on was pretty tough, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I work my way around it. <laughs> I broke... Uh, broken my see my left collarbone twice and my right one just actually fairly recently i was mountain biking early in the morning and the deer took me out coming down the oh. track and and uh and then just jetted across the trail on yeah you? yeah it was just it was it was the sun had yet to come up so it was still you know it, it was just starting to come up so it was pretty dark because kind of surrounded in this uh, uh, kind of foresty area and um, I didn't even see it. I actually, I don't even know if it's a deer or something, mm. you know, like I for sure something yeah. took, took me out, took my front wheel out. I didn't, I didn't T-bone it. It hit me and took me out. Kind of clip, clipped the wheel or yeah. you know, just took you yeah. down. Yeah, man. So I was going to ask, are all three brakes biking related? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. On the left side, the last one, I actually broke when a long time ago uh, in a race called the Peace Race. It used to be a big uh, race where it, the Eastern Bloc would, would, it was kind of their big Tour de France almost. And I was with the U.S. national team in uh, 1980, I think it was. And uh, 
I remember um, the, you know, the, the, the coach saying, look, don't worry, we'll come back and pick you up in, in uh, 10 days once, because it happened like on the second day of the race in East Germany out in some little village outside of Leipzig. And, uh, you know, before internet or cell phones and, and uh, it actually did, it, it was remarkable. Every, my teammates were all like, Oh, you know, East Germany, it's going to, you're going to be like Frankenstein. They're going to operate on you. And <laughs> it's going to be terrible. But, uh, um, a few years ago, my left shoulder kind of froze up and I went to see the, the orthopedic surgeon here and he asked who did the surgery on, on it. And I said, look, I have no idea. I was some doctor in East Germany a long time ago. And he said he did a really good job. He, oh wow! And they pioneered, I guess, a lot of orthopedic procedures. So I was really fortunate, and uh, I remember the they were super kind of excited that there was an American, and because it was in the middle of the Cold War, and and uh, the the surgeon came in to talk to me like the next day, in sort of broken English, and I remember he walked into the hospital room smoking a cigarette, and oh man, and, uh, <laughs> and there was a Stasi you know, secret police always outside of my, my hospital room for whatever reason, you know, like yeah. I was, I was just a little dinky kid and I don't know what they thought I could have done, you know? Sure. That's wild. Yeah. I was, um, of course, nothing like that, but even going to the hospital during this COVID time was weird. Oh yeah. It's like no one was around the surgeon uh, floor, I guess, since there's no elective surgeries, I was like the only guy up there. So I got a lot of attention, which was great, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was really bizarre. It was really yeah. bizarre. So I'm on the mend. Um, can't wait to, to get back to bikes as, as all of us do. That's the first thing we ask. So how long, you yeah, know, how exactly. long till I can pedal again? Exactly. Um, took a little spin around the parking lot though on the fourth. So had to one arm, little one arm ride, uh, yeah. uh, make sure not to tell the surgeon about that one. <laughs> Well, uh, you kind of alluded to a little bit, but for anyone who doesn't know, you have an extensive and impressive racing career. Um, you were on the Olympic team in 84, and then you were a part of the first American Tour de France team in 86. And I kind of wanted to ask, with the Tour de France, this is the first time since World War II the Tour de France isn't happening in July. And while they are planning to have it in September, they're doing this virtual tour de France and I wanted to get your thoughts on it because it's not the real deal and everyone can have their own opinions about it. But someone who has been there and done the race and knows how special it is, what do you think about the virtual tour de France? You know, <clears throat> this is just such a unique time period and, and uh, everybody's trying to find ways to, 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 to bike race, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever that looks like. And, and, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of, uh, well, let me put it this way, indoor riding. Um, you know, I, I had to do it, um, you know, in this kind of the seventies, eighties. And, um, it was this, those old turbo trainers and with mm -hmm. the fan and it was super loud and, and didn't feel like the road at all. And, and, uh, I basically don't ride indoors. Me personally, I figure mm -hmm. at 60 years old, I'll just, if 
it's if the weather's bad here in Colorado, it's snowing or something, I'll just wait and and usually I can get out on the road or I'll do a hike or, or something, you know. I just don't ride indoors and and uh the the tech I, I have ridden Zwift before and the technology is super cool and it's awesome. And um if I was like your age, I'm 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 sure I'd be super engaged in it. I think it's fine because we're all really just trying to find ways and to to be able to compete and 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 the pro cyclists, their teams are looking their to how they can bring value to their sponsors and things like that. And it's another way. I don't see it replacing what really happens on the road. And I don't think anybody does, you know, I don't think mm-hmm. uh, the CEO, the, you know, founder of Zwift sees that, but, but uh, I think um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's like anything technology keeps marching on and you may not like it, but it's, it's here to stay and it's going to keep getting better and better and better. And uh, you know, there's, there's a certain point you get, um, as you age and you just go, you know, I don't need to learn this now. I have so many other things <laughs> like I got to stay up on and, and I'd just rather for me, bike riding isn't about a workout now. And, uh, it's, it's about everything else. You know, it's about being outside. It's about handling my bike. It's about, uh, you know, being close to nature. It's, 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 it's all those things. And that's what, that's what excites me. If, if, if I was, um, younger then it it would definitely be about making sure I'm getting my workout in and make sure, making sure it's really effective. And it's great for that, uh, indoor training, whether it's using a, a platform like Zwift or, or others is great for getting a workout in it's, it's, there's community, there's all those sort of things. I don't think it's gonna, you know, and, and I don't think anybody think it's it's going to replace what you see out on the road in, in reality. Yeah. And when you kind of like you said, it used to be the worst case scenario. I can't ride outside. So I guess I'll get on this turbo trainer because yeah. I need to do my workout. And, it, you know, it's kind of a dreaded thing sitting in the in the garage or in the basement um, and just spinning it out. And now it's like, you know, of course, stages, we have our smart bike and these bikes are getting so incredible that it mimics the road so well. And um, while you can't replace what it feels like to ride your bike outside and and be in nature and the fresh air and and the elevation, um, it is pretty wild to see how close they're getting um, to the real thing. So keeping on with the Tour de France trend, I, I had to ask, being in the first American team, was that, were you accepted into the Peloton well? Like, what was that like? Nobody really knew who we were, you know? I mean, yeah. It was uh, before the Tour de France, the year before was the first year in 85, we went to Europe. And, and uh, in the spring of, of 85, uh, in, we got there in February, I think, and, and uh, we raced a lot of the uh, races down south, southern part of, of uh, France, uh, Tour Mediterranean, um, you know, Pyrenees, things like that. Um, and uh, I remember there's an opening, the opening race on the Italian calendar back then was Trofe La Guelia, and, and uh, it's on the Italian Riviera there. It's a one-day race, and 
um, you know, 100, I don't know, 80K or something. And, and like most Italian races, they, you know, you, you climb up to a finish, like, a, a, you know, it always seems like, okay, we're going up there to this village to finish. And, and it wasn't a really hard climb. It was about a 3K uh, climb and, and we all kind of gathered uh, our teammates, Davis Fenney, Ron Kiefel, um, and we talked about what we would do. And there, I think there were only six of us on the team then when we were doing this first European um, venture into the Pro Peloton. And, and, the, and Ron Kiefel had a really awesome uphill kind of uh, sprint. And, uh, and so, well, let's line it up. 10k before the finish because the rest of the, the, the it did like three big circuits or something okay and uh let's line it up get everybody strung out the 10k going into that final climb and then we'll nail it really hard and we'll drop everybody had a nickname on the team and ron's nickname was wookie and we'll <laughs> drop wookie off with about a kilometer to go and he'll do a Wookiee sprint and he'll win. And we're, we're all like, Oh yeah. Okay, sure. Let's do it. Easy enough. Right? Yeah. Easy <laughs> enough. And, and, uh, uh, the race started, I got some sort of bronchial infection and, and, uh, uh, I, my, my, uh, Francisco Moser was, he was, this was his last year race and he had just won the tour of Italy the year before set the hour record mm. when Milano Serimo and things like that. It was, it was super popular in, in Italy. And, and I remember it started off and everybody's talking like riding really kind of slow and, and easy and, and everybody's chit chatting and we're just trying to stay out of everybody's way. And, um, I, I, I went, blew this huge loogie and it landed on Francisco Moser's thigh. Oh, and, no. and it was like, and he looked at me and he was like speechless. And, I, and he looked down at his thigh and then looked at me. And, and uh, it, I think, uh, I, I don't think he was trying to go like, who are you? Where are you? I, have no, I don't know this team. I don't know anything. How are you even here? And then he started letting loose and yelling at me and everything. And and uh, I kind of slumped all the way to the back, and and uh, my teammates were like, "Oh my God, you just blew the biggest loogie on on Moser's and we're gonna, you know, they're gonna they're gonna drag you through the streets like uh, the the Tifosi, the fans are gonna drag you through the streets like like they did Mussolini and everything." <laughs> yeah, so I was I was kind of uh, nervous, but the race went on, and and uh, coming into the finale. Uh, we all lined up and we started, you know, hitting it hard. And uh, we dropped Wookie off with a kilometer to go and he won. <laughs> wow. Like unbelievable. Nobody even knew, like the announcer couldn't even, like he, he won, but he couldn't even say who it was. And because uh, it, it, nobody even knew we were in the race. So yeah. it, it took a while to kind of break in. But, but once we won, we started getting accepted. Yeah, that's usually all it takes. Yeah. You know, you just have to prove your worth and show that you belong there. Uh, that's super cool. That's what an awesome story. <laughs> you sent uh, a couple photos over and and when people listen to this, they can see it on our Instagram posts. But one of those is from uh, Rebe. And 
it's an awesome photo. And of course, the first thing you see is the helmet. And the helmet is just this tiny little string together, you know, kind of a sorry excuse for a helmet by today's standards. Um, but the bike, it's got down tube shifters and and Roubaix is such a grueling, it's really closer to a cyclocross race almost. It's just so rough. And bikes now are starting to even resemble cyclocross. They're getting wider tires. They're getting, you know, of course, disc brakes and some kind of um, vibration dampening in the rear chain stays, all these things. What was it like racing in those environments on the equipment that you had? The Probably, what, 21 millimeter tires at the time? Yeah. And um, I'm sure it just rattled you to bits. <laughs> You know, it's kind of hard to imagine now. I, I don't know how we did it, to be honest. I have no idea. We just, that's all there was. You didn't really know any better. And, and uh, you know, the helmets, uh, when you were a, a pro cyclist back then, you didn't have to wear a helmet. It was sort of like hockey, you know, like if you were a pro, you they considered that you could make that choice, you know, whether you wanted to wear one or not. And and, and we, there were no hard shell helmets. The only thing were these strapped hairnet helmets and it, it really didn't do much. It kind of kept the pieces together. And um, that was the, I think the first year I rode Perry Bay and I did it four times. And then the next year I rode without a helmet. And cause you know, it, it's, it, you were part of the club, you know, if you wore a helmet, it didn't, you weren't, it didn't feel like you were part of the club and, and so to speak. And, and uh, you, you want to fit in and um, had a really bad crash and uh, of course hit my head uh, when I when I raced the next year without the helmet and got a bad concussion and uh, um, you know it, it's it, it's just hard to think of riding uh, now like that we we usually do uh, at CTS, we'll take a group over and we'll do those, the sportive ride the day before the pros. And I've done that a few times and, and it just beats the snot out of you. And, and I, I thought about that. I'm like, how did I ride that on these, you know, 21 millimeter tires and, you know, tubular tires and, uh, you know, tiny little rims and, and steel frame and every, I don't know if I, 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 I can't, you just didn't, we didn't know any better and we just, it was, everybody else was doing it. So we did it. Yeah. He, you'd almost like to uh, put today's riders on those bikes and say, hey, go give it a shot, you know, see, see what they think, see if they could do it. Um, because it's wild. Those pictures are super cool. Of course, you were inducted to the Bicycle Hall of Fame. You've got an incredible racing career. I read that you broke your femur in 86 in a cross-country skiing accident. That must have been a heck of a crash in cross-country skiing. I know you get going on speed, but to break a femur, you've got to hit the ground hard. What happened? It was total freak accident. Um, and I, the, the season had, had ended and I w came back to the States. I was staying with my sister who was living in the Bay Area. And uh, we, um, me and, and two buddies, um, drove up to Mount Shasta and, um, we drove up this, we, we were going to go to this bowl and, and it just snowed. It was like November. And, uh, it, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of snow. There's a lot of exposed ground and we were going to do some telemarking. Um, and 
we took this Jeep trail in about 20 miles and then hiked in like three miles and uh, just got clipped in and, and I was starting to move to where um, the top of this bowl um, where I was going to drop in and, and, uh, and a buddy, I heard him say something to me, my friend, and I turned back and I hit, must've hit a rock or something and fell over. I wasn't even going, it wasn't like a, you know, wild, wide world of sports sort of, mm-hmm. you know, yard sale situation. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like that. It was just like, I just fell over. My knee was bent um, you know, at a kind of 90 degree angle and all my weight, it was kind of like, cause you weren't moving really fast. It was just awkward. And I kind of fell and all my weight went on it. And the patella sort of acted as a, uh, a wedge mm. and split the femoral condyles. And then it split a little further up and then it compounded, um, and the bone came out of the, out of my skin oh. further up. And, uh, Needless to say, it was extremely painful. And um, at the time, you realize this was no cell phones, no internet. Mm -hmm. There was a, Mount Shasta had a little sort of emergency hospital. Um, Okay. There was no flight for life. So one buddy had to stay. Another buddy had to read, you know, go back and retrace, you know, the three mile hike in. 20 mile Jeep trail ride down, get the EMT and they had to do the same thing. So I was, I was up there like, you know, something like 16 hours. Oh my gosh. uh, It was, it was, uh, I was actually really fortunate to survive because I really started struggling to breathe after a while Mm -hmm. and I couldn't figure out, but apparently um, large bones like your femur or your pelvis have fat in in them, and if it's a big displaced fracture, that can get picked up by your uh, bloodstream. And these fat uh, embolisms started lodging lodging in my lungs, and so I, you know, a lot of people it could have gone to my brain, and I could have had a stroke or sure. Uh, so I was really fortunate that I survived because I had all these fat embolisms in my lungs, and I was really struggling to breathe. So, um, um, you know, that, that was kind of life changing for me. I lost about an inch of femur length, my right leg, um, uh, when they put it back together with Mm -hmm. the surgery and everything. And I think that was the most, you know, like if you lose it below the knee, you can make up for the reach, but you're always short on, uh, horizontally, you know, above the knee. And your femur's like a lever on your on your uh, crank arm, like a cheater bar, you know. And the bigger mm-hmm. the you know cheater bar that you have, the easier it is to to turn. So, I, and and I had sequential knee surgeries after that a few times, and and uh, so now I'm I'm just and, that, and that's what got me into coaching was right. Eventually, okay. I raced a couple more years. My contract was up. I was really, I, I'll also add that the team I was with, 7-Eleven, the, the team director, Jim Okowitz, everybody, he supplied health insurance for everybody. And oh, cool. I was really fortunate because, I mean, it was probably back then, you know, 
three or $400,000 uh, medical bills. And that would have financially crippled me at that stage of my life, you know, so mm-hmm. I was really fortunate. Wow. That's incredible. I had no idea it was that severe. Do you, on the bike, do you have to um, compensate for that? Or, or like, do you have a special setup to compensate for the shortened femur? I, I, I do. I, I ride Rocket 7 shoes and they're custom built shoes and they build up the right sole of the shoe. They're all carbon and they layer in and, and they make up for about three quarters of an inch in, in that okay. right um, in that right shoe. You're always short horizontally, like I said, and there's nothing you can really do. You don't want to ride two different crank arm lengths or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, so, uh, you know, always short, but I, you know, as long as I'm riding a bike, I'm happy. Yeah, that's right. As long as you can still get out there and, yeah. and somehow we always find a way to keep getting out there. So you, after that, you formed Carmichael training systems, which congrats on 20 years. That's Thanks. awesome. Yeah. Um, this year. And that seems like that kind of snowballed. You started writing books, notably uh, The Time Crunch Cyclist and Time Crunch Triathlete. Those are super popular books. Um, you started writing columns in major magazines like Bicycling Magazine, Outside, Road Bike Action. This is like a whole nother career. You had this racing career and now you're helping other people um, get going on bikes and, and get fast. And how was that transitioning and kind of being on the other side of racing? Well, before I, I started CTS, I, uh, I was with the U.S. cycling team. And, and uh, I, when my contract wasn't renewed, um, I uh, was contacted by Yuri Manis, uh, who was the national coaching director for the uh, national team. And he asked if I wanted to come out and work some development camps. And um, so I didn't imagine myself getting into coaching, um, but I, I remember talking to my dad and he didn't know a lot about cycling, but he, he, he said, uh, you know, it sure seems like you have a PhD in this bike racing thing and it'd be good for you to get in with a bigger organization and give something back to the sport that has, you know, done really well for you. And um, so I did, I started working these, these development camps and there were with the kids that were coming out of the junior program before getting into what was called the senior program. There was no under 23 back then. And so they were kind of the top um, junior national team transitioning into what was called there was a national A team and a national B team and the, the elite juniors would go into the B team. So I worked these development camps at the Olympic training center and really enjoyed it and felt like I had an aptitude for it. And there was such great talent, you know, I mean, that was the era, of, you know, obviously Lance, George Hincapi, mm-hmm. um, you know, many others, Bobby Julek, many others. Uh, and it was clear to see the talent. It was just this, uh, you know, amazing, period in, in U.S. cycling. And uh, um, and there was U.S. cycling after the 84 Olympics, the head coach of the team at that time was Eddie Borshevitz or known, he's known as Eddie B. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, he left in 88, right before the Seoul Olympics. And the U.S. team didn't really have much 
coaching and, and they had coaches in there that had like wrestling backgrounds and, and just, you know, really the, the athletes really didn't have, they didn't have much credibility with the athletes. So the athletes were really happy to, to, that I was getting involved because I was coming fresh out of the pro Peloton um, and, you know, my, my own racing career. Um, so I continued to progress uh, and eventually I became the national coach for the men's program and then eventually the national uh, coaching director that oversaw all road, track, mountain bike. Um, and uh, um, there was the 92 Olympic Games in Barcelona and then uh, the head coach for the team in 1996. So all that background with the U.S. cycling team really was pivotal and paved the way for me launching CTS in 2000. And, and I was with the U S cycling team for eight years. Um, okay. and so that, that kind of paved the way, um, for, uh, CTS. Yeah. What is gravel, this rise in gravel racing? How are people training differently and how is that changing the way that people train for such, I mean, a 200 mile race, this isn't an hour crit or, you know, maybe a three hour stage race. It's, a whole different kind of racing. You know, there's gravel. It's, it's, uh, as much as it's different, it's still, you're on a bike, you know, and you still have to, there, the demands for that, the nutritional demands and fluid demands go up considerably versus, you know, doing a two hour event. So really it's making sure that, um, you really can dial in your nutrition program your, uh, your fluid as well, because they go hand in hand. And then it's really, you know, being able to make sure that you're, you're getting your power threshold as high as possible, that you also are doing a lot of long rides. So you get that acclimation to being able to be out there for six, seven hours, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours. Um, And, and that's a lot of it, but it really comes down to ultimately, um, a really good rider athlete in dirty cons or, or um, Leadville or something like that. They're also really good on the road too, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe not an hour crit. Um, but if you, if you put them in a long hilly road race, they'll probably do pretty well also. Yeah. And that's a big piece that most of the athletes who do well in those races say is the nutrition has been their key, figuring out how to keep their body fueled for that long of a time. Another athlete on the list that CTS has trained is American stock car driver, Carl Edwards. Can you share a little bit of how NASCAR worked its way into CTS? Yeah, Carl is, uh, uh, he took, um, his fitness really seriously. And, and we first started getting athletes from NASCAR and we still get athletes from, from NASCAR, IndyCar, um, motocross. Uh, usually they, they, there was a, probably about 10 years ago in NASCAR, um, there was a new generation of drivers coming up and they looked at themselves really different than, sort of the, the old school NASCAR drivers, which were kind of beer drinking, you know, loving to have fun and, and sort of like good old boys sort of thing. And, and, uh, right. 
they looked at themselves as athletes. And uh, the way Carl would say it is like, look, if I got a great car, you know, great aerodynamics, great uh, mechanics, great engine, all that sort of stuff, and I'm fat and out of shape, or I'm fit and in shape, who's going to have the advantage? You know, I mean, it, right. it gets really hot in those cars. Um, it's split second decision making. Your brain runs on sugar. And, uh, and so if you can, you know, throughout it, if you can be able to burn a little more fat, um, you have more of that stored carbohydrate for being able to make those quick, you know, decisions. Um, and it's not impaired at all. Your, your ability to handle high heat, things like that, your ability to be able to not get dehydrated, uh, improves dramatically. So being fit and in shape, if you're involved in any sport is always better than being fat and out of shape. So an athlete like that, that isn't necessarily focused on a bike race, how are you integrating bike training for something like that to, to help them improve all those things that you just mentioned? It's, it's actually more than just on the bike. We do a, a, a lot of the aerobic training on the bike, but for Carl, it was also a lot of strength training, a lot of flexibility, agility work, all that. You want to kind of look at the whole package. You also want to look at, are, are there things that we could do to influence um, his ability to stay cool, um, especially in, in really hot conditions while in the car. And, and we did a lot of different testing and things like that. It never really found a particular um, way in which to manipulate that so it, he could stay cool, that were, would stay within the regulations of the sport, um, except that the fitter he got, you know, the more, uh, the, the, the less influence the heat would have on him and he could handle it much better. You don't think about sports like that, but how important it is really in anything you do. It, Like you said, it's better to just be fit and uh, then fatten out of shape. It's going to help in uh, probably 10 out of 10 situations. Exactly, exactly. Because everybody's got a great car. Everybody's got great mechanics. Everybody's got great aerodynamics, great engineers working on it. And if the driver, you know, and drivers, you know, there, there's obviously more to driving than just being fit. But everything considered, you know, do you want your driver in shape or out of shape? No doubt. You definitely, uh, you try and find the advantage anywhere you can. And that's a probably an overlooked space um, to make those improvements. Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed over the last 10 years. Now it's a big part of basically all the drivers programs. They're, you know, they're, they're all much more serious about their conditioning than it was 10 years ago. Well, I have a couple questions for you, a couple maybe more fun questions uh, as we wrap it up. But if you had to pick one kind of bike to ride for the rest of your life, what would it be? Like gravel, mountain bike, road, fixed gear, any of it? I like it all, man. I, 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 I like it all. I mean, I used to race on the track. I don't, I don't really ride on the track anymore, but I, but I, I did like track racing and, and, uh, I like gravel. I love mountain bike road. I mean, road is my background. I, I would probably, if I could only pick one, I'd probably go gravel, you know, because yeah. I can, you can also do it mix it up and 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 usually when people go out and ride gravel it's usually mixed between road and gravel and, and at least that's the way 
here in Colorado, I'll leave from my, from my house and, and I'll be on the road for a little while. Then I'll hit some gravel beyond that and then maybe pop back on the road and then, you know, back on the gravel. And, and uh, I tend to ride a little more narrow tire, like a 30 or 32 millimeter uh, okay. tire. And, and it, unless, you know, it, it, I think that's more just cause I'm sort of old school. You know, I, I grew up like you bomb the tires, you know, <laughs> 120 pounds of pressure in there and, you know, 19 millimeter tires. And, and, uh, I, I just feel, it feels too squishy if it's like, you know, a 38 now doing dirty Kanza, you need a tire like that. But for most of the gravel that I ride here in Colorado, SPT gravel, I did on, uh, that, that, the, the race last year, I did it, uh, on, I think 35s and, uh, okay. and it, it was fine. I didn't have any problems. Do you prefer short and intense ride or long days in the saddle? Long days. I mean, long days. I, yeah. I, I love getting out there and I typically ride by myself. Um, I just, it, it clears my mind. I, I, it's my, when I'm on the bike, that's my church. That's my temple, you know, and, and, and it's my religion. And I started bike racing when I was nine years old in 1969. And, you know, I'm a much better person when I'm riding my bike. If I don't ride my bike too much, not so good. Do you have a favorite training snack, something to take with you on the bike? You know, I, if I'm going out long, I'll make my own little sandwiches. And, uh, and you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I like those, uh, Hawaiian rolls, uh, okay. the white kind yeah. of Hawaiian rolls. I'll take those and I'll, uh, put a little honey down, kind of mash a banana into it. And then I'll sprinkle some, uh, uh, salt on it too. Cause you know, you, you need the salt as well. And that kind of sweet, salty, uh, taste I, I find is, is, is good. Uh, especially on a long day. And, and uh, so I'll do some of those, or maybe I'll do like a little uh, peanut butter and, you know, some uh, honey or something like that. And I always put a little salt because I just, I, I like the, the sweet and sourness of it. Yeah, I'm similar. I like to take the real foods. I'd rather yeah. make something and, you know, wrap it up in, in uh, some paper and take it with me than a bunch of packets of whatever has been created in a lab, you know, there's, which are great in the right environment, but. It is um, good. You know, like we, there's a, your energy, they make these, uh, these gels and they're all just kind of fruit and they're just crushed up in, in, in a gel. And sometimes I'll take those cause there's, uh, I'll take that in addition to the sandwiches mm -hmm. I'll make, um, because, it's just kind of quick and easy. If I, if I need a little bit of a sugar bump, boom, I'll pop one in. Awesome. Lastly, if you have one tip for your average person that just wants to improve their fitness right now, what would you tell them? Uh, consistency, getting out there and being consistent. It, you know, the, the one thing that I see that especially kind of uh, newbies getting into it they'll do a big ride on the weekend or the weekend they'll pack everything on the weekend and they don't ride much in between. And, and you need that consistency, even if it's just an hour. And if you look at it, 
you know, an hour, three days a week, and then a big ride on the weekend, and you look at it from a macro view at the end of the month, you're going to increase your training volume significantly by just doing an hour, hour and a half, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and a big ride on the weekend. Yeah, it's always better than just trying to cram at the end of the week and and then your body is wrecked for the next few days and you don't want to do anything. And um, so, yeah, I found in my own personal training that that's, that's been my best results have come from just staying at it, not throttling myself every day. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really common for people, if they don't ride a lot, they get on the bike, they're fresh, they go out and kind of kill themselves and they won't be able to do anything for like three or four days, you know, but it's better to be a little more moderate, but consistent with your training. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this is all incredible information and some super cool stories. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me a little bit. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.